This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, September 30th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. As renegotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement begins, what are the opportunities and risks for expanding trade? Cato visiting scholar Inu Monak discusses how American trading relationships might change. Trade is good, and the more of it we engage in, the more opportunities to create wealth we have. Where are we right now with respect to quote-unquote renegotiating NAFTA, which Donald Trump pledged to do on the campaign trail? At the moment, we're at the really early stages in the negotiations where each of the sides has basically sort of felt out what the other sides are willing to negotiate on. So they're throwing out ideas about what they want to talk about without actually putting forward a text which they're going to negotiate on. Okay, So this is several rounds. Everybody has to take drafts back to their respective constituencies and then sort of take a bunch of junk from – uh, their constituencies and try to get that sort of shoehorned back into the agreement. That's exactly right. So there usually are an uncountable number of rounds that happen during these negotiations. Right now, Lighthizer, Ambassador Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, has basically said that their goal is to complete most negotiations by the end of the year. I think that that seems like a really ambitious goal. Uh, that means they're going to have to do a lot of rounds really quickly. And right now, when you look at the timeline between the rounds, there's just been about 17 days maybe between them. So they're rapidly starting the negotiation process. But it's a process that requires consultation as well with domestic constituencies too. What do the trade crew uh, – they've been called uh, the president's protectionist triumvirate. What do they want out of – this renegotiation of NAFTA? I think what they're looking for really is to deliver on sort of Donald Trump's promise to American workers to try to, one, deal with the trade deficit, uh, which was mentioned in the first round by Ambassador Lighthizer but never came up after that. Uh, the second issue that came up is looking at rules of origin. Uh, and rules of origin are sort of content rules. So in order to qualify for the duty-free preference of a trade agreement, you have to have a certain percentage of a product coming from the that region. What is the duty-free preference? What does that get you out of? So basically what that means is at the border, you don't pay any tariff on a product if it qualifies for that specific rule. And what would the tariff be otherwise? Uh, so let's take an example of the auto industry, which is the main industry that currently has been brought up in talks. Uh, so right now, in order for a car to come into the United States uh, from Mexico and Canada and to qualify for duty-free preference, it requires that 62.5 percent of that car is made in North America. So with parts and components from North America. Okay. So let's take those uh, two ideas in turn. One, the trade deficit and two, this uh, preferences. Uh, for the trade deficit, how important is that? From an economic standpoint, not important at all. It's not something that needs to be dealt with uh, at all. And, and all economists sort of agree on this point that it makes no sense uh, to address the trade deficit through a trade agreement. Uh, one thing that 
is, is very common to understand is that when you're looking at the trade deficit, having a trade deficit is actually beneficial for the United States. This means that we actually have a lot of investments coming into the United States, for one, and that's really positive for U.S. economic growth. So dealing with a trade deficit by reducing it, when you think about the ways you would do it, it means raising barriers even further to these other countries. And that would actually have negative effects in many different areas. So what is the relationship then between the trade deficit and foreign direct investment uh, companies like Toyota and uh, Daimler Chrysler and other companies having investments in the United States? So when a company is investing in the U.S., uh, when you look at the trade deficits, like an accounting measure really is what it is, and an investment in the U.S. counts as a negative. So basically that means that we are um, – arithmetically essentially uh, losing a little bit, uh, but we're not because we actually are gaining jobs and investment in the United States. So, And, and these people, these uh, companies want to have American workers build their stuff? They do. I mean, you look at Toyota, uh, you look at um, companies like Honda, uh, they are investing in the United States and, and they are employing American workers to make cars here. Now, these rules of origin with respect to uh, what percentage content goes into a product that the U.S. either buys or exports or one of these countries buys or exports from another one? What, it, what does the current administration want out of that? Well, how do they want to change that? So this has actually been one of the more controversial points put forward by the administration so far. What they have suggested at the moment, and it's not – for sure that this is exactly what they're going to go forward with in the next round. But it's been floated that they want to increase the content of American uh, content within autos. So there's there's two issues with rules of origin and autos in particular here. One, they want to increase across the board the amount of North American content. Second, they want to increase American content within that North American content requirement. The second point is actually very controversial because this has not really been done before in a trade agreement. Okay, so uh, if I understand your point correctly, you're talking about the percentage of the total value of some product uh, must be uh, from North America and within trade between among North America or, or among Mexico, Canada and uh, the United States increase the amount of U.S. content for these products? What, what are we likely to see if those rules carry the day, those increase of required content? I think what we're willing uh, or we're going to see uh, if the rules of origin are going to lead to higher content for North American uh, products, what we're going to see is basically you take the auto, say it's 62.5 percent North American content required for a car to be imported in the United States right now. Let's say we move that to 70 percent. Now, producers in Mexico and Canada face a choice. They basically can say, hey, what I can do is buy more U.S. or Canadian products or Mexican products and put them into the components of the car. Or what I can do is get cheaper components from other places, and instead of going duty-free, I can just pay the very low tariff rate of 2.5% into the United States. Now, that's a really low tariff rate, and that's a trade-off that producers will have to face, and they likely are going to take more foreign products and components and less U.S. in this case. So compelling people to uh, increase the amount of U.S. content in products uh, or – pay a tariff gives them a purely mathematical consideration about, well, am I going to buy from this guy or this guy and what's my total profit margin going to be 
if I if, when I make that decision. Exactly, especially because the tariff is so low to begin with, and most U.S. tariffs are quite low. Uh, so in many ways, it's just a basic mathematical calculation by producers to decide, is it really worth it for me to do all these extra things to source U.S. products than to just pay the duty rate? Okay, so um, in terms of revenue to the federal government, is there something that they ought to prefer one way or another with respect to what these – uh, other producers in Canada and Mexico might do? I don't think so. I think the federal government, even if they're collecting a 2.5 percent duty, it's not it's not a huge amount uh, that they're collecting. So there's no benefit there. And in fact, the benefit is is small or non-existent in many ways when you think about it. Because essentially, if you have a, U, a Mexican auto producer that then decides to source more parts from Japan and China then it's not sourcing these things in the United States anymore. That means less U.S. jobs, less U.S. content. So the entire point of increasing U.S. content does the opposite of that when actually put into practice. So uh, with respect to U.S. industries that are maybe very small, where there are a few producers and maybe the president and uh, his friends would like to see uh, those producers privileged above producers in other countries, you would think that those producers would understand or appreciate that they might end up losing out of this deal. Is that, is that the case? I think we're seeing that. The auto industry does not support the proposal to increase rules of origin. There are other producers, such as the steel industry, that are lobbying quite hard to increase the rules, particularly for including U.S. steel in these cars. Uh, so there are some producers that are doing it, but overall, the auto industry understands that this cost is going to be very large to the United States if they go forward with increasing these content requirements. The TPP. Uh, the current president decided not to sign it and made a big deal out of not signing it. What is the relationship between these NAFTA negotiations and what was in the TPP? Well, actually, I would say they're really closely linked. Uh, if you look at the list of things that so far have been brought up in the first two rounds of the NAFTA negotiations, there have been topics like small and medium-sized enterprises, competitiveness, digital trade and e-commerce have been brought up. There have been changes to intellectual property uh, and biologics and pharmaceuticals. All of these things that we've heard so far are items that come straight from the TPP. So uh, many of the gains that we have made in transforming these trade chapters to be modern come from the most modern trade agreement we negotiated, which is a Trans-Pacific Partnership. Okay, so uh, these are barriers to trade that don't have anything to do with tariffs. Exactly. A lot of them. Okay, so what does that mean? So that means that there are additional things that prevent trade that are not exactly to do with a, a duty you pay at the border, right? Um, so, for example, you want to take things like uh, rules on, on state-owned enterprises. Uh, these are things that essentially uh, talk about how much uh, a government can control of, of its enterprise and, and whether or not that can be um, used as an investment in another place. So I think that there are rules like that. There are also rules on e-commerce um, that are quite important. They're outdated. Uh, that have to do with things that we set up in a time when there was no digital trade. Um, and so that way we have rules that are sort of 
sort of lagging behind, uh, that haven't caught up to the reality of how we're trading today. I've talked to other trade people about this and I want to get your opinion. Um, what do you think of the idea that our intellectual property rules, be it patents or copyright or uh, I guess to, to a lesser extent trademarks, uh, building those kinds of requirements for other countries into trade agreements? To, in, for developing countries, that seems uh, if not heartless, at, at the very least, very bothersome. Yeah, I, I would agree that it is quite bothersome. And the U.S. is pushing quite hard on uh, making more stringent intellectual property requirements uh, and, and embedding them within trade agreements. Uh, there's the one issue of biologics uh, in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, which received a, a certain uh, time frame in which there would be exclusivity for its data and production. Um, so if the U.S. creates it, essentially is allowed to maintain a monopoly on producing that product for a certain time period. Uh, the U.S. Trade Representative has suggested that they want to increase that time frame even further in the NAFTA. Now, why would they do this? Because if they can get it in the NAFTA, that can be a new baseline for them to negotiate it in other places. Uh, that's problematic because already the rules are quite strict. And this prevents the ability of startups and smaller businesses making pharmaceutical products to allow them to make these drugs that are very life-saving uh, in other places. So it really stifles competition in a very big way to have more stringent intellectual property requirements. And, and countries that might have their own startups that would like to develop similar drugs or, or reverse engineer products that are uh, under US law treated as exclusive as owned formulas for products. That's correct. Inu Monik is a visiting scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.